You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. Do circumstances define you? Unfortunately, the answer is yes for many people. George Bernard Shaw, one of the most prominent thinkers and playwrights of the 20th century, said this, I don't believe in circumstances. The people who get on in this world are the people who get up and look for the circumstances they want, and if they can't find them, make them. Hey, hello, storytellers, and welcome once again to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. I'm excited to announce that our sponsor is Audible. They are offering you, our listeners, a free download of one of your favorite audio books. You get to choose from 180,000 titles, and you also get a one-month free trial of Audible's entire service. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. That is www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. For your convenience, you can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio, as well as the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. Because the theme of the show is Change Your Story, Change Your Life, I've created a free gift for you, my listeners. It is an ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life in Business. You can download it immediately at www.changeyourstorypodcast.com. One of the most rewarding things in this podcast for me is my ongoing dialogue with you, my storytellers, my listeners. Let's continue that dialogue. Keep sending your comments about what you're getting from the show and what you'd like to see in it going forward. Send them to Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com. I promise to read every message I receive and to choose some of them to share with you on the show. Today's guest is a woman who lives by Shaw's story about life and the world. She's faced circumstances that could have made her bitter, unproductive, and even destroyed her. Instead, she became an actress, an award-winning writer, who has written and published poetry, magazine articles, TV and radio scripts, and most recently a novel that has won the prestigious H.R. Percy Award for Canadian Writers. She is also a political activist, a wife, and a mother. I'm proud to call her a friend, and before I introduce her, I'm going to read one of her latest Facebook posts. I am Heidi. I am a gladiator. I never give in and fight to the end. 
Storytellers, you are in for a treat. I'm excited and honored to introduce Heidi Van Palesk to the show. Heidi, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Thank you very much, and I'm so happy to be here today with you. And you know, guys, we're literally here together because Heidi lives near me, so we didn't have to do this on Skype. We're doing it in the same studio. We're sharing a microphone. Yes, we are. <laughs> so, Heidi... Let's do something original, like begin at the beginning. Where were you born? Well, I, I'm a Toronto girl through and through. So I was born in East Toronto, and then I grew up on the shores of Lake Ontario between Whitby and Ajax. You grew up on the shores. Uh, did they put you on the beach as a child? Uh, yeah, I, I just drifted in like a piece of driftwood. That's, you know, <laughs> they, just, they, they just picked me up. Yes, so I well, I tell you, my my summers were spent with my shoes off and uh, on the beach the whole day, or or at the farm the whole day. So uh, I, I was never a shoe person. I was always a boot or barefoot girl, and so I was a country girl. I was a country girl. Fantastic! Did you come from a big family, Heidi? Five children. Is that big? Yeah, it's big. I'm an only child. You better believe that's big. Wow. Um, and I'm right in the middle, so hmm. yeah, I'm what they call the messed up middle child. That's what they call the middle child. But I, I have some theories about that. I think the middle child, because they're so often forgotten, they get to live in their own mind a little bit more. They get to live in the mind of, uh, of you know, imagination, and um, and they tend to be a bit more creative. I think the middle child. It's interesting. Were you? Uh, would you consider yourself that you were kind of forgotten in your family? Yeah. <laughs> oh. I would say, right. well, okay, so I had an older brother and sister, and uh, when I was young, you know, they they did things together, and I was the, you know, I was the little pest, and then my younger brothers are six and eight years younger, so you don't really, you know, when you're 10, you don't really play with a, a four and two-year-old, so I, I had a lot of time on my own to think and to read and to dream, and I think even if at the time it felt like uh, a little bit lonely, I think it's actually been part of what's made me. Wow, that's that's very interesting. I particularly relate because I don't, I mean, I was an only child. I certainly wasn't a forgotten child. But I was drawn to the world of the imagination as well from a very, very young age. Who would you say were the strongest influences on you as a kid? Oh, well, that's, uh, in some ways, that's very easy. My grandmother was a huge influence. She was a woman who didn't take any crap from anyone and uh, she was very very um, stylish and outspoken she she defined herself as a rebel even back in those days and so I I looked to her with a lot of admiration my mom's mom absolutely so she's she's right up there as a, a personal mentor hmm. what did your parents do well uh, my father I had great dreams to be a, a writer and a photographer, but he ended up taking a job at a company called Johns Manville, which was an asbestos factory when uh, when the children started to be born so that he could provide for us. And uh, so he basically handled asbestos in, in an asbestos plant, asbestos that was uh, brought from Quebec and manufactured in Ontario. Mm -hmm. And my mom was, uh, she was a stay-at-home mom. She edited a few books, however, and uh, and then later on she ran a marketing and research company. Wow, mm -hmm. that's interesting. Marketing research, how did she get into that? 
I, you know, she just had an interest and she knew someone was selling the business and she just jumped in. She just, uh, she just went for it and, uh, she, she bought the business and she learned as she went. So she didn't, uh, she didn't let, uh, she didn't let not, not knowing how to do something stand in the way of doing something she wanted to do. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. She was an identical twin too, right? Wow. Yeah, she was an identical twin and they really, really were identical. So I have a funny little story, quick one, and that is that uh, my mom and my dad met at the Banff Springs Hotel. And that was the year that Marilyn Monroe was shooting there and Ellen Ladd and Robert Mitchum and uh, Shelley Winters, Otto Preminger was there. And my dad first fell in love with my aunt and didn't know that they were twins. And she couldn't stand him. She called him a blockhead. She just thought he was horrible. And then he saw her hitchhiking and he picked her up and he couldn't believe how much nicer she was. Well, of course, the woman he picked up was my mom. And he ended up marrying my mother. My God, that, that, that's like, that should be in a film script. And it's, it's great, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's a wonderful yeah. story. And where was this, uh, this was, hotel, you said? It, it was the Banff Springs Hotel in Banff. Wow, yeah. what were they shooting? The River of No Return. Wow. They're doing that. And um, I can't remember um, with Ellen Ladd if it was Shane or, or what it was, but there's two Westerns mm-hmm. being done there the same summer. Yeah, Ellen Ladd, I think, I think he was the star of Shane, yeah. Yeah. He's, he was apparently a short look. I've got all kinds of pictures of the twins. Yeah, he with was him. apparently very short. Very yeah. short, yeah. yeah. Like Tom Cruise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you have a kid's dream of what you wanted to be as a grown up? Well, by the time I was in third grade, I was writing, directing, and starring in my own plays. Whoa, yeah, third grade. Third grade, yeah. So so I was kind of, it was kind of strange because, you know, as I said, I was a farm girl. So I'd be, you know, walking around the farm amongst, you know, cows and chickens and things. But in my mind, you know, I had sunglasses and a boa on. I mean, there's a, there's a dream of being a movie star when I was very young. But by third grade, it was a bit more serious. I was right, and it, I did it weekly. So there's a weekly play done at school. And I would write it and direct it and, and do it. And I think I did it because I didn't really have a lot of friends. And so if you were the one who was initiating a play and people wanted to be in a play, then suddenly you had friends. So I think that that was probably the reason I started to have this little drama club. And, and it went for three years. Wow. Yeah. You kind of anticipated my next question. Have you always been drawn to both writing and acting? And the answer is yes. Absolutely. I guess so. Yeah. At this stage, do you love one more than the other? Yes, right now I like writing more. And why is that? I don't know. Um, I think because it's a bit purer. Now, I knew for sure that I was going to go to theater school when I was 15 years old, and I was reading a play called Antigone, and I couldn't believe, I could not believe the words. I could not believe the writing. And I I remember thinking, if these words exist, I have to be an actor because I have to bring these beautiful words to people. But as we all know, eventually you have to pay bills. And so you go from reading something like Antigone or you, you read Shakespeare and then suddenly instead you're saying, kiss my bullet, um, you know, <laughs> or, or all kinds. Of, my best line was, you got me lathered to a tizzy with all your dipsy doodles. Um, what was that in? That was in Kung Fu. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I was wearing a, a negligee. So at some point, you know, the, the, this pure dream changes. And so, you know, we're lucky when we do a, a great movie or we have a great role. But then there's a lot of other stuff in between. 
And right now, writing is still pure for me. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's the purity that makes me love it in a different way, you know, than, than acting, in a very pure way. I understand that. I really do. I mean, you can control what you are creating much more as a writer than you are allowed to um, in most of today's movies and television. Absolutely. And the other thing you can do, especially you know, now that I'm writing novels, is you can get inside the head of your characters. So you get into their thought processes. You, th- you get into their dreams and what really makes... and their fears. And I find that very interesting. What's going on in the mind is as interesting, if not more so, than what's going on when someone's walking down the street or, or, or you know, making a coffee or, or talking. You know, mm-hmm. that, that interior monologue is just as important as whatever's happening on the exterior. And so that really uh, appeals to me in, in writing right now. It allows for much more depth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Heidi, what was your darkest moment? Well, there have been some, uh, a few. Um, you know, my uh, my whole um, activism was was encouraged through a very dark time. Um, my father, as we mentioned before, worked in an asbestos factory, and he he lived a very very clean, pure life, very organic. He exercised, he ate well, he never smoked, and so he outlived everyone in that factory by ten to twenty years. And so we always felt that we were on borrowed time and we were very lucky because he outlived all of his friends. However, when my mother got mesothelioma, I remember sitting there thinking there was nothing I could do. There's no cure for it. So there was no way I could take her pain away, and it's one of the most painful cancers to die of. There was nothing I could do to extend her life. There was nothing I could do to give her hope. There was nothing I could do to make her live. And what was painful about that was that I realized that she had gotten it because of the asbestos my dad had brought into the house, which meant that we were all at risk. And so instead of being able to just grieve my mother and go through the process of losing her, I wasn't able to do that because of my own fear for myself, my fear that I wouldn't be there to take care of my daughter because there there is a 30-year latency period and so we were all like you know like ticking time bombs now my sister does have um, some pleural plaques because of the asbestos my older brother has uh, signs of asbestosis but uh, my lungs have been absolutely clear so I'm, I'm very fortunate so that was a very that was a hard time and both my mother and my father when they died um, I was with them both when they died and my mother was so small by then I, I was I was literally holding her in my arms, and uh, so it was. It was it was dark, and now you know we get to middle age, and we all lose our parents. It isn't that I lost my parents; it's how I lost them. Hmm. So your father died from the same illness. Yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah. And how old were they? They were seventy-nine. Okay. Um, both of them, they're four years apart. So we basically mm-hmm. just got over. Um, over my, my dad dying, and then my mom died. And then, okay, so if I could just go back to the twin thing. Um, during that time, I, I did a, a radio documentary, and my aunt said, I cannot believe that I was brought into the world with my twin Doreen, and I'm not going out with her. So we all felt, all of the children felt, that it was really important that my aunt was 
treated as though she were the grandmother of our children and, you know, that we that we really did much more for her because losing an identical twin is very, very hard. I, I kind of think they only have one soul between them. So, um, so that's what she said. And then the day that we had a memorial for my mom, my aunt collapsed. Now she had had she had had a uh, uh, a physical just a few weeks before, and she had a clean bill of health. Well, she died five weeks after my mom. Wow! With all the same symptoms, but Ooh. no one could quite figure it out. And so, so it was you know it was the day of the memorial, and my sister and I we stepped up and took care of my aunt the way we had my mother, and it felt like we were watching my mother die twice. It was so, my mom's death was kind of reinforced in a strange way by watching my aunt die right afterwards. Like we didn't have time to grieve my mom. We were taking care of my aunt. And then it was, a, it was a double whammy. They were, they were, they were both gone. My dad, it was, it was, it was everyone at once, it seemed. And then the fear for ourselves. So that's why I, I, uh, I chose not to grieve and be sad. I chose to fight. Wow. Now, that disease destroys the lungs, correct? Yes, the asbestos basically gets between the uh, the lining of the lung and the wall of the lung, and it can't get out. Mm. So then it, it starts to um, create these growths, and what happens is the growths grow on top of the growths, so you slowly suffocate to death. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. It's a nightmare. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you ever have bad dreams about drowning or anything, it, it is literally that. Whew. And can I just say, I mean, my mom, is she is the bravest person I know. And I didn't think of her that way when she was alive. She didn't seem like such an incredible fighter or, you know, she was just mom. Her dying, I, I, cannot, I cannot begin to tell you how brave she was. Most people were, most people, you know, that I, I talked to afterwards, my, my, my sisters in arms who fought along with me, they all said that their relative was, you know, completely high on morphine during the dying process. My mom refused that because she felt she had so little time that she wanted to be alert and there when her children and her grandchildren visited. So she didn't take anything to kill the pain. And the day she died, and she knew she was dying that day, she knew it, the day she died, in the last hour, she started a mantra. And the mantra went like this. Wolfgang, I love you. Aurora, I love you. Heidi, I love you. Loring, I love you. Antony, I love you. Then she started on the grandchildren. And then she did it again. And she did it until the second she died. So my mom, my mom died with love on her lips, you know? Mm. It was the bravest thing. How many years ago? It was five years ago. Five. Yeah. It's still fresh. Still fresh. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fresh because, okay, so then I took up arms and fought the government. Yeah. Talk about how you began to overcome this, well, this devastating experience. Well, I started the fight before my mom died. I actually recorded my mom... Um, talking about the exportation to third world countries and how she felt it was terribly unfair. So we actually, we had that and that, it, that played on CBC radio and it also went into um, a documentary. So, and we, we recorded her on a Thursday and she was dead by the Saturday. Um, but by that point I had already done one documentary, 
My sister basically called me and she said, people don't know about this disease. And there are a lot of kids out there who are, who are children of workers who would never think of being tested. We have to raise awareness and I don't know how. And I thought, I can't make my mom feel better. I can't do any of those things, but I can get publicity. That's the one thing I know how to do. And within two hours, I had the first radio documentary all lined up to go. And so it became, um, it became a question of letting the public know that we were there and we were fighting. And then I was um, contacted by a woman who had been trying to get asbestos banned for 10 years. And she, she um, put me in touch with some other women who were, who were also fighting. And we just kind of grew and we became the Canadian Voices of Asbestos Victims. And we went to Parliament and we went to the UN and uh, we just fought on 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 every, every way that we could, and uh, a lot of it was online, a lot of it was physically, a lot of it was with letters. We just uh, we fought on on every front that we possibly could. Hmm. And, and what came of that of that fight? Well, it took uh, about two years, and uh, finally they they closed the mines, they refused the loans, and uh, they stopped the exportation of asbestos. And more importantly, Canada stood in the way of there being a warning sign on the packaging. In other words, um, they, could, they could ship asbestos off to, say, India, where 107,000 people die every year from mesothelioma, from asbestos. They could ship it without so much as saying, warning, this could be bad for your health. I mean, you've got those on cigarette packages and they, they wouldn't, you know, so, so there would be, there would be a, uh, a vote every few years at the Rotterdam Convention about whether or not asbestos should be listed as a hazardous material. And Canada stood in the way. So it was very important for us to change that policy, which we did. Wow. Yeah. That must feel very satisfying. I thought it would. I mm. thought it would be pop the champagne corks and, you know, we won. And all of a sudden, I just felt my heart, you know, like, feel so sad and empty. And I realized because I had filled it with fighting and I did not grieve my mom. I was fighting it for her. I made her promise that I would do all those things. And then once it was done... Well, she wasn't back, was she? And I realized that the tears I should have had for her earlier, I didn't have. I was too busy fighting injustice. So as soon as we won, then there was a place for me to miss her, and I started to cry. And I didn't feel that sense of, woohoo, we did it. And then after that, I remember being at a dinner party, and there was a producer there that I knew, and he had been following the radio shows. He had watched both of the documentaries. He'd been following, you know, all, all the things I'd written, and... Uh, he said to me, wow, so now, Heidi, what's next? What does the knight do after you've slayed the dragon? And I thought, he's the first person who gets it. Like, what do you do once you've slayed the dragon? And I've had a lot of people come to me with different things that they want me to fight, right? The, you know, and uh, I, I haven't, uh, I was tired after the fight. I was really tired. Um, so... That, that there's the next thing is the publishing company. Mm. I wanted to instead of instead of fight, I wanted to create next, and mm. I wanted to create, the, you know, with the with the skills I learned fighting. I wanted to create the way a warrior would create, you mm. know, where you don't take no for an answer, and you you see beyond limitations. And when people say, well, you can't possibly, you say, watch me, 
because that's what I do with the asbestos. When people said to me, this is a David and Goliath story, and, uh, you know, you're never going to win, I would say, you didn't read to the end of that story, did you? Because hmm. David wins. David wins. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm really trying to hold on to David wins, and I'm trying to bring that into the publishing company now. Oh, beautiful. How has the family tragedy shaped your artistic vision? Well, I think that truth-telling is very important to me. And I think that the family tragedy, actually, when we go back to acting, I think it's made me a better actor, for sure. Um, not that there's as much work for you when you get a bit older as a woman, but uh, I, I do know that I'm a better actor because of it. But I also think that in terms of picking up the pen to write, I mean, a lot of people say that, oh, I'm waiting for the muse to descend upon me or I'm waiting to be inspired. But sometimes being inspired means actually turning on the computer or picking up the pen and just, just doing it. You know, you don't wait for that moment. You create it. And so I think that it really gave me a sense of grabbing the moment and also that you can't put off things. You know, you can't... It gave me a sense of my own mortality. I mean, I, I became... You know, I became obsessed for a while with the idea that, you know, I, I could have it too and I, I could be dying. And so now I I do tend to live my life a lot more um, thinking, you know, you don't know how long you have, so do it now. Just just do it now. And, and don't tell other people they should live their dreams. Make an example of yourself by living your dreams. You kind of touched already on the next question, but if there's anything you want to add to it, how has the tragedy shaped your character? I think I'm a bit more patient. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I do think so. Um, and I think that I don't necessarily just... I think as an actor, it's easy just to get caught up in your art as an actor, in you know your last job. And yourself, there's something a little narcissistic about being a film actor. And I think that really sort of brought me out more into the world. I think I have a, a greater concern about about global situations. And I have a greater concern about my fellow man, I would say. And I know that sounds, you know, I, you know it sounds silly. No, but, it doesn't, uh, sound, doesn't sound silly at all. No, but no. I, it did. It, it did change. And But bigger than that, the biggest thing is that, okay, so there's always the thought, I'm just a little guy. I can't do anything, you know. What? Who am I against governments and corporations and the man? But that fight taught me, because I I was the little guy, and uh, I met a few other little guys. There were seven little guys, and um, seven little guys changed policy. And and also, you know, one hundred seven thousand people may not die next year because we changed some policy. So. I learned that the little guy really does matter. The little voice does matter. And it's not just about, you know, there's nothing I can do. There's always something you can do. You know, and the first step to doing something is opening your mouth. Gandhi was a little guy. He was a little guy. Yeah. (laughs) Alan Ladd was a little guy, but that's a different kind of little guy. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Switching gears, what do you love most about the acting business? I like being someone else. Um, I also like the fact that in day-to-day life, we have to, society demands that we almost have a mask on a lot of the times, right? We have to behave a certain way. And when you're acting, you get to pull that mask off in a sense. So when people think that acting is pretending, for me, acting is about being real. 
it's great. So you, you get to feel all the things that you're, you're told to, you know, buck up and not feel. Um, so I, I love that. And I love craft trucks too. Mm, Food. I love. <laughs> I, I, I I love what you just said about the, about it being um, more honest and and truthful. Because um, when yeah, I taught, I mean, I mean, I know you taught too a bit, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. So I I always would say to people, it's not about lying. It's not you know. It's about telling the truth. It's about getting to that part of yourself that's true. So even if those aren't your lines, or even that if that's not your character, you have to find the truth in yourself that gives it resonance, right? Absolutely. Can I share with you um, a phrase that I came up with to describe what an actor is? Yes. Actors are divine liars. <laughs> yeah, uh, or... Maybe not so divine truth tellers. It depends. Certainly, when I said, you know, you got me lathered to a tizzy with all your dipsy doodles, I would be a, a definitely a liar at that point, I will have to say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But there have been other moments, though, where, I mean, you've, you've had that too, where, you, where you've just hit a character so perfectly and it touches you that you, you know that being. It's almost like you've, you've taken on someone else's skin and you get to live another life for a moment. It's great. Mm hmm. Well, see, to me, that's the divine part, mm. the lying in the sense that you're really not that person, but you're acting it, you're being it. You're being it at yeah, that yeah, moment. Yeah, you're yeah, being yeah, it. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So what do you hate most about the acting business? The business. <laughs> I hate auditions. Um, I shouldn't because I should look at them as a chance to perform. But I, I hate all of the, you know, the the getting ready. I mean, you get ready for for two hours and you audition for five minutes. I hate that. And, um, you know, and I hate the, the times that you're not working. And, uh, there's, yeah, there's, you know, so there's, there, there are those things. There are things about the business that are, are, are difficult. And it, you know, and, and I hate the fact that your self-worth is sometimes, you know, tied into whether or not you got that job because it sometimes is beyond your control, you know. What about the fact that so much of the material you handed is not very inspiring? Well, that's true, but I'm not sure it, if, if it's the actor that hates that or if it's the writer because, you know, sometimes you read something you think, oh, my God, they just made $30,000 to write that and... You know, even if my book's a bestseller, I'm not going to make anywhere near that. And look at that line. So sometimes I, I'm not sure if it's the actor or if it's the writer that sometimes cringes. You know, I don't know. I mean, do you, you do you cringe sometimes? Do you sometimes read something and go, oh, my goodness? Yeah, I do. I've learned to make almost any of that stuff mine. And if it's really terrible, suggest a change and often... The director will say, go ahead and change it. But um, I've had some great directors that way. I mean, yeah. I've had some, you know, directors who really think on their feet. And we've got some fantastic directors here in Canada. And uh, some of them have been, you know, completely open to, to changes. Yeah. And you got to work with uh, Mr. Cronenberg. Way back when, in the beginning, yes. Yeah. And, yeah, and people said to me, oh, it's not going to get better than that. You know, David Cronenberg and Jeremy Irons. And I thought, oh. Please, I mean, I'm starting out. It's going to be great, uh, but that's definitely one of the, the mention, highlights. Mention the film, Dead Ringers. Dead Ringers. Dead yes, Ringers. indeed. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And that was, I mean, and the thing that's interesting about that film was that it was so much fun to shoot. 
I mean, I, I just I just had such a great time every day on set. That when I watched it and it was so dark, it seemed kind of strange to me because mm-hmm. what I was seeing was not my experience of being there. You were having fun, yeah. 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 And of course, it was about twins. And I brought my mom, who's a twin, to the opening, right? So mm. at the end, instead of saying, you know, oh, dear, you were wonderful, she just sat there saying, I don't know what I would do if I ever lost my twin. Mm. So it, it actually affected a, a twin very differently than it would anyone else. Mm. And I've done a lot of things where there's either been the word twin or double. It's strange, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, there are no accidents in the universe. Nope, I guess not. Now, what motivated you to write a novel? Oh, well, this one, this one is very interesting. Um, okay, just after Dead Ringers, I was also teaching aerobics at some of the, the clubs in Toronto, and uh, I had just given it up. I was back from L.A. for the Genie Awards, but I'd gone into my club, and I was on the exercise machine, and someone came in and told me that a mutual friend had died. But it was April Fool's, so I thought, that's a really sick April Fool's joke. But it wasn't. And they said it was an accident. But it wasn't. She had jumped in front of a subway train. Mm. And uh, so, you know, I went to the funeral and, you know, I, I kind of processed that. And, and she, she was a woman who had taken my classes all the time. She was always positive. She was very beautiful. She was very smart, very creative. And um, it, it was hard to digest, really. And then one day I was standing at a subway station and I just, I just kept thinking how how could you? And I heard the sound of the train coming and I could almost feel the weight of it. And I kept just thinking, how, how is it possible? And I went home and I wrote a paragraph. And then I wrote more. And then it was a short story. And then eventually, and it's strange because although, you know, it, it started with her suicide, the book became something very different but it really was the impetus to to write. I had to put down into words something I didn't understand and work through it. And uh, so that was that was part of it. And the other part was, at the very same time, I was researching two sculptors who had lived in Toronto and had started the Sculpture Society of Canada for a film I wanted to write and had fallen in love with their work. So I had this whole thing of suicide and sculpture all happening at the same time. And so... I, somehow they, they came together and the birth was the book. And the title is? They Don't Run Red Trains Anymore. Mm, and it's getting a lot of good um, uh, press, a lot of good reviews, it's yes? It's gotten some nice reviews already, which is fantastic. And uh, let's, just, let's just hope it keeps going. And I've already, I've got another book almost ready to go out. And I've started writing another one, so wow. um, yeah. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling really, I'm feeling really good as a writer, and uh, I'm, I'm loving it. I really am. And the award that you won, what kind of award is that? The, the H.R. Percy Award is uh, an award for the best unpublished manuscript in Eastern Canada. So I won that before it was published. Hmm. Yeah. So that was that was um, that was very encouraging, right? Before it was published, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Now, did you have to overcome negative self-talk in order to write and complete your novel? Of course. Mm. <laughs> you know, yes, of course. Um, and, you know, I think that, I think it's very common with uh, artists of all sorts to think, I'm an imposter. I used to do that as an actor, too. I'd say, I'm not really an actor. And I, I had friends who would say to me, 
yeah, but you've got people believing you, so you must be pretty good at acting like you're an actor, so you're a good actor. Uh, you know, but you can't, you can't do that roundabout funny logic with writing. So there are times where, sure, you look at a blank page or you read something that you wrote the night before and you went to bed thinking it was marvelous and you wake up and you read it and it's not. So I think the key is to be able to step outside yourself and also be a good editor at, at the same time. And if you can trust that, then you can be a good writer. Well, obviously you overcame the negativity and self-talk because you completed the book and you're on to uh, several more. Mm-hmm. Now, what inspired you to um, begin your own publishing company? Well, now this is kind of funny. I have been saying for many years, actually, that if I ever won the lottery, I would start a publishing company. And then one day I was walking down Broadview Avenue here in Toronto, and I thought, why am I letting something as insignificant as money, because money comes and money goes, stand in the way of a dream? So let's just do it on nothing. Let's just do it on a wing and a prayer and just start. And then I had a friend of mine say to me, well, if you're going to do that, Heidi, don't do too much research. Just tell everyone you're doing it and learn what you have to learn afterwards. Because once you announce you're doing it, you're not going to go back. So that's exactly what I did. I said, I'm starting a publishing company and uh, I just jumped in. Fantastic. And what is it called? It's called Smart House Books. So we have a website, www.smarthousebooks.com. And uh, obviously your your book is through that, uh, through that publishing house. Yes, and we did two more. Two more. Right. We did one. Uh, Barbara March did a book called The Copper People. It's a nice slim novella. takes place in Italy. Uh, it is so... Rich with detail, you actually feel like you're gaining weight when you read any of the sections <laughs> of her food. <laughs> and then the other one is called The Revelation of Jack the Ripper. By, yes, by Ellen Scarf. And uh, it was already published in Italy. And it got amazing reviews from people like Colin Wilson and uh, Criminologist Magazine. So it, it, was, it, it, it already has a track record, but it hasn't been published in English. And uh, it's a very interesting book. It's, a, it's an account of Jack the Ripper in his voice from the other side of the grave. Mm. Yeah, so, it's, so, they're all, so you know, I looked at the three books and I thought, you know, they're very different. But the one thing that is similar is that they're all written first person and they all have kind of a, I don't know, a confessional quality, mm-hmm. right? So, so all three books have that, which is which is great. And then I have some great books coming out in the fall. So, beautiful, yeah, good for you, yeah. Heidi. What was your favorite film project that you worked on, and why? Oh, that's that's difficult. You know, maybe Dead Ringers, but then I did a small show. It was just a TV show called The Hidden Room. And I did a, a guest lead on that. Christian Duguay was the director. And he said to me on the first day, let's shoot this like it's our own little movie. And we did. And uh, and we just made sure that every moment was as honest as, as possible. And that was, that was great fun. And then I did this weird film called Ramona. And, I mean, it was like guerrilla filmmaking. You know, we would just, we would go into a site and grab a shot before anyone would catch us. And there's something that was kind of rebel and fun about that. So, so they were they were all great projects. Beautiful. Yeah. I was. Uh, why Why would you say that uh, those were your favorites, or the, the, 
if you had to pick out the number one, why would it have been your favorite? Well, Dead Ringers, because I was working with extraordinary talent and because it was the first real, real movie set that I was on. So mm-hmm. it was all new and exciting. And then, you know, all of my scenes were opposite Jeremy Irons. Um, David Cronenberg was fun and he's so smart. Uh, so that's, you know, that's a, that's an obvious one. Um, and Ramona, well, you know, I think it was kind of hell at the time, but it was just so... It was so crazy. I mean, we shot in Tijuana, we shot in Vegas, we shot in the desert. We were all over the place. So, mm. you know, I was seeing, you know, different landscapes and, and and it was a lead, so I knew I was carrying the film. And so that was, you know, that that was that was it was just it was craziness. And and also the craziness of youth because those are, you know, both ones from, you know, a while ago. So, I have a series coming back though, which I'm excited about called Star Hunter. Oh. Uh, yeah, Star Hunter I did uh, the year my daughter was born. Wow. Yeah, we did it uh, and then the following year. So there's, there's two seasons, and it's coming back, and they're going to do a season three, maybe three, four, and five, because people are now binge-watching. So if any of the streaming companies, and I can't say which one right now, uh, but if any of them buy a season or two, they want a commitment of five seasons. So after all those years, we're going to do a reboot. And so that's exciting. So I, I get to be a bit of a time traveler in that. So, yeah. And you know what's funny? When I was fighting the asbestos thing, I said, you know, I just, what I want right now is that I just want a series to drop into my lap. I don't want to have to audition for it. Or I want something to come back. I just want a series where I can go in and, you know, work here and there. I want something easy. And then out of nowhere, it came back. Out of 15, uh, 15 years ago, we did it. Wow. It's crazy. So there's the lesson. Put it out there. Say it. Mm-hmm. Put it out there. Let the universe know what you want so that it can be very specific when it gives it to you. Mm-hmm. I like that. Do you have a favorite book other than your own? I have a few favorite books. Okay. Okay. So um, one of my favorite books is Immortality by Milan Kundera. Uh, I, I, I felt sad when I finished that book. I, I would do whatever I could during the day so I, I could get home and, and read it. Uh, the Marriage of Cadmus and Harmony, and uh, probably The English Patient. These are all works of fiction? All works of fiction. The Marriage of? Cadmus and Harmony. It's um, written by Roberto Colasso. And it's, well, I guess it's not really fiction. It's mythology. He he goes through all the Greek myths, uh, but he he infuses them with this great meaning. And he he compares them. And he he talks about, you know, what could have been going on politically. But he he just, he's a great storyteller. And he layers one myth on top of the other. It's it's just, it's like a rich tapestry. It's a fantastic book. Beautiful. Yeah. And Immortality is by Milan Kundera. Yeah. So, you know, he did The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Yes. Yeah. He's a fabulous writer. And the third one was which? Oh, In the Skin of a Lion by Michael Ondaatje. Oh, no, you mentioned The English Patient. Oh, well, The English Patient he wrote too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but, but, um, Skin of a Lion, though, I really feel is the book. If someone says, you know, I want to understand Toronto, I'd say that's the book to read. Why? Because it, it takes place with the building of Toronto. I mean, it takes place, it starts off with the building of the, uh, the Bloor Viaduct, right? Oh. You know, linking East and West Toronto. And, um, there's so many Toronto landscapes in it, and, uh, it, it really, the time period is such that Toronto was 
probably just starting to feel what it would be as a city. Hmm. So I think, yeah, I think it's a very important book for this city. Oh, beautiful. I, you know, I didn't really know that because I, uh, I've not read it myself. That, that's, that's interesting to know. I, I liked it so much. Oh, my gosh. I yeah. liked that book so much that two other people, I forced them to sit there while I read it to them. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you don't want to read it? I will read it to you. Here, I'll come with you while you do your laundry, and I'll read you a few chapters. And, of course, faster. those people will never read a book again. But <laughs> <laughs> They call me up. Here's a book I would like you to read to me, Heidi. <laughs> what is your favorite quote? Oh, um, well, uh, okay, so my my... My quote my dad used to always say that I, I love, and I'm sure he got it a little bit wrong, but it goes like this. Against stupidity, even the gods themselves fight in vain. Against stupidity, even <laughs> the, the gods, gods themselves, themselves fight, fight in vain. vain. Yes, yeah, so I, I put that on his tombstone, actually. And that, and, was, that was your dad's? Yes, that was my what dad's What was his quote. first name? Wolfgang. Okay. Yep, really, it really was Wolfgang. No, Wolfgang, your uh, German heritage? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, but I have I have a quote of my own that I use. I have my own motto. You want to hear what that is? Yeah. Don't be an extra in the story of your life. I like that. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think that's important because that means you don't sit back and let life happen and you take a back seat. You're the star of your own story. I love that. Yeah. So. It's right in line with what um, my message is in this show. Don't be an extra in your own life. Yep, in the story of your life. Oh, in yeah. The story. Don't be an extra in the story of your life. Yep. Because that's yeah. just giving, that just gives power to other people. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, it sure does. Mm -hmm. And Wolfgang's was against stupidity, even the gods fight in vain. That's right. Okay, Which I, I think that. actually is um, Nietzsche. Could be. You know, it sounds right. like something that uh, good old Friedrich would have yeah, said. Yeah, it does, doesn't you know, it? Or written. Yeah. Absolutely. But to me, that's my dad's quote, so, you know. Fantastic. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing in the world, what would it be? Well, that's a, that's, there's like, that's a tough one. But I think that I would, I think I would, uh, I think I would ask for more tolerance. Okay, so you would change intolerance to tolerance. I would change intolerance to tolerance, and that's on many levels, right? I mean, that's on a day-to-day, -day, but that's also, that has to do with racism, mm -hmm. that has to do with, you know, um, inequity. Uh, but it, it but it also, it starts, tolerance starts in the smallest way, right? And then we have to build on that. So I, I would, you know, I, I would wish for more tolerance. Beautiful thing. We certainly need it. Where do you see yourself in five years? Well, I hope that in five years to this day, I'm back in front of this microphone with you. <laughs> well, wait a minute. It's not going to take five years. No, well, every year. I think we every should, year uh, on this day. I got news for you. We're going to be doing more very soon. Excellent. Okay, so in five years, well, I want all three of my books out, of course. Uh -huh. I want my company to be self-sustaining and with my roster of um, award-winning authors um, and uh, some of the writers I have, I would want them to have their second and third books out as well. And uh, just to be on Smart House, to be on the map. And that's where I see myself. I see myself in, in the book world. Beautiful. How can people contact you? They can contact me through uh, smarthousebooks.com. And they can also contact me at 
Heidi at smarthousebooks.com. And it's H-E-I-D-I. That's right. Wow. Yeah, that was, um, that little belch was Skype. Hello, ah. hello Skype. Smarthousebooks.com. That's right. And the books you can, you know, the books can be bought off of the website as well as off of Amazon, or you can go into chapters and order them. And uh, a lot of the ind- independent stores in Toronto are carrying them right now as well. So, and, so there's lots um, of ways to get And Kindle. So you Kindle, can, yeah. Yep, and Kobo. Oh, beautiful. So we're on pretty much every platform. Fantastic. Yeah. Any final thoughts for our storytellers today? Don't give up and don't put the pen down. The, you know, the word is, uh, the pen is mightier than the sword. And, uh, and, and words can change the world. So uh, speak your mind. Use your voice, write, and uh, even if you get a lot of rejections, just keep going. Because I had a lot of rejections, and uh, hey, what do they know? You just keep going. Thank you so much for offering so, well, so much inspiration and strength to our storytellers today. It's been a tremendous pleasure. Thank you. Thank you once again, storytellers, for spending time with us today in what was a very intimate thought-provoking, and, if you listen closely, a life-changing conversation with an absolutely incredible and unique woman, Heidi Van Palesk, an artist, a political activist, an actress, writer, creative spirit, a fun-loving person, and a human being who shows up in the world every day with strength, courage, a sense of contribution, and a real desire to make a change in the world. Pay this forward. Let people know that they can hear this on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. And at the website, take advantage of the free gift I've created for you, a downloadable ebook, Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Heidi shared her love of books with you and mentioned quite a number of them. Remember that as a listener to this show, you can download one of those books or any other, choosing from 120,000 titles, as a free audiobook at Audible. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash Story Power. And of course, continue your communication with me by sending your emails to lewis at changeyourstorypodcast.com. In the next few weeks, when you reflect on the things you heard,